And they sounded great. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 19 uh, in the first 12 verses. We're going straight through uh, the book of Matthew, and uh, we will uh, continue to do that. Today it's the first 12 verses of 19. I'm going to read that, and then we'll see what God has to say. Matthew chapter 19 says, Now when Jesus had finished saying these things, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Large crowds followed Him and He healed them there. The Pharisees came up to Him and tested Him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said to him, Well, why then Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man and with his wife, it's better not to marry. And he said to them, Well, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. This is God's Word. Let me pray so I don't mess it up. Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is powerful. It has the ability to cut us deeply, Lord, and to comfort us in the same way. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, move me out of the way. Speak the words you need to speak to whom you need to speak them to. Lift the veils from our hearts and help us to find the comfort we need or the conviction that is necessary to make us look more like your Son. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So... What we see here, and again, Matthew's very organized in, in how he's writing, and so uh, chapters uh, 17 to 20 is this journey that Jesus is on from Capernaum, his hometown, hometown being home base. He was really raised in Nazareth, but Capernaum to Jerusalem. And you see that the rest of the book of Matthew after chapter 20 really takes place in and around Jerusalem, minus the last parts of, of chapter 28. And as he's been journeying, he keeps telling his disciples the same thing. And so far, no less than three times, Jesus tells his disciples that he's going to Jerusalem. That's why he's traveling there. He is going to be delivered and rejected and killed by the Jewish leaders. And they either don't believe him or they don't understand him. And they've been expecting Jesus to, when he gets there, kind of assume his rightful throne as king and... Uh, just reign and reign with Him. And Jesus is trying throughout this passage and, and others as He's journeying to prepare them for a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. Now the church, as Jesus is the only one who speaks about in the Gospels twice, in fact, in chapter 18 and 16, the church is the, the assembly of the people of God. And it's designed or built and created to display the character of God's kingdom. When you see the church, you see the people of God, you're supposed to see the reflection of what God's kingdom is like. The reality of 
our heavenly citizenship, we'll call it. The reality of that truth is supposed to be revealed through how we live on earth. Particularly through the relationships we have with one another. Within that kingdom that we commune in. Because, the Bible says, the love of Jesus controls those who are saved by Him, His adopted sons and daughters, our relationships are supposed to look different than the world around us. We've seen in chapter 18, as we worked our way through here, that we love unlike the world, or ought to. We are to confront one another unlike the world does. We are to forgive, as we saw last week, unlike the world does. And now Jesus continues and says, we're supposed to marry unlike the world does. We are supposed to parent unlike the world does. We're supposed to use our money differently than the world does. We are to be a people living in the world governed by another. We're to look different. Now in Matthew, Jesus, uh, in chapter 18, Jesus just taught us how to deal with sin in relationships. When sin comes into relationships, here's how you deal with it. Particularly in, in the church. He taught us how to love and how to care, how to protect one another from our own sin. He taught us how to confront one another. He taught us how to forgive one another. And now Jesus moves into what amounts, I think, to the most important relationship apart from Christ that we might have, and that is marriage. In response to questions about marriage, where he is being tested, he gives really explicit instructions or at least information about divorce. And it's tempting, I've seen many pastors and preachers and scholars do this, to take this passage out of context and kind of go, here's the formula of what is okay regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and they spend all their time charting what you can do, what is allowed, how far you can go, and not sin. And that's not wholly and comprehensively evil, but I think it's perhaps unwise to take it out of context like this, that charting out of what can I do? How far can I go and not sin? What's okay? That's exactly what the Pharisees are doing here. See, the Pharisees didn't ask as they, they talk about sin coming into marriage. They didn't come up and ask, hey, Jesus, how is it possible to restore the most intimate of relationships wrecked by sin? That wasn't their question. Their question was, when is it right to allow hurting people to end it all and to separate. So as men represented by the Pharisees, and just so you know, we're either disciples of the Pharisees in this story. We're not Jesus, so we're not looking good. But as men try to kind of dictate their own ideal of what relationships should look like, and as we see men misusing God's law to accomplish that ideal, and we see men really reject their really bad situation, their bad relationship as a curse, Jesus kind of turns everything upside down. He says, look, there's an ideal that we are to pursue. 
And there's a way to rightly use the law. And there's actually a way to receive your situation as a gift from Jesus and actually for Jesus. So let me give you a little bit of context to understand what Jesus is talking about. Because um, His revelations about the kingdom, try to like just relationships in the kingdom, are, do come in a context of some specific instructions about marriage. And so we need to understand why they would even ask this question. Uh, at the time that Jesus is, is ministering, there are kind of two schools of thought. When I say schools, I literally mean schools, like rabbinical schools of thought regarding valid grounds for divorce. One was quite liberal and one was very conservative. And they both took their understanding for valid grounds for divorce from Deuteronomy 24. In Deuteronomy 24, first couple of verses, gives the instructions that they're referring to, and it says this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, sends her out of the house, and she departs out of his house, and it continues. That's what they're talking about. So the conservative school took that passage and they focused on the phrase, some indecency. And they determined that the only grounds for divorce would be sexual immorality in the context of marriage, which would mean adultery, either during the betrothal engagement period or afterwards. So adultery was it. That was the conservative stance. They focused on indecency. The other liberal school focused on the word either something or not finding favor, which is certainly broad in its interpretation. It got so broad that they determined that a valid grounds for divorce would be just about anything. Literally writing in one of the rabbinical laws if the bread was burnt, that was served to them by their wife, that was valid grounds for divorce. Or if they just found someone else more attractive. Or anything else. Predominantly the culture that Jesus is addressing here, and you can see it represented by these Pharisees, uh, take a more liberal interpretation of divorce. They believe that as long as they follow the letter of the law and issue a certificate, because they haven't found favor, they can get a divorce for any reason they want. I no longer like your looks. I no longer like your attitude. I don't like your compatibility. I just don't like you, and I really like her. Okay, That's pretty much what they could do. So the any cause divorce is what they're referring to, and it's the most common, as I said, in Jesus' day, and actually it's the exact same as our own. I don't know how familiar you are. I'm confident all of you are probably familiar with divorce and that it somehow has impacted your life. But in terms of the law, the only legal grounds for divorce in the state of Washington is irretrievable breakdown of marriage. Which basically can mean anything. And the state of Washington is also a no-fault divorce state, which means that there's no evidence required to prove that one spouse is more responsible for the failure of the marriage more than the other, even if there's adultery or abuse or desertion. That's in the state of Washington. So in our state, you can literally marry who you want, divorce who you want, or remarry who you want at any time for any reason. That's the culture we live in. Similar to Jesus' culture, 
um, in many ways. Now, since its creation, that being marriage, a world that is in rebellion has uh, challenged the institution of marriage in different ways. Today, uh, some directly challenge the importance of marriage just by how they live. It's not important enough to get married, and so they'll live uh, as married in their hearts type of mentality so that they can really be married in their parts is what they really want to do. While others go even further to challenge it, not just by how they live, but by changing the definitions, which is what we've experienced in our state. And what I'm trying to do, we step back and we just kind of look at Scripture. I want you to understand that this isn't just an issue of changing a law. It's a flat-out rejection of God's design and His authority. In many ways of which we, uh, when the law was passed a couple years ago in the state of Washington, when we were at Damascus Road, we kind of put out a public statement of our disposition towards it simply because history, we wanted to at least declare that we had taken a stand in some way. And in that statement, though, it explains that what you're really doing is not just redefining marriage, you're trying to redefine God. Jesus here basically says that the meaning and purpose and definition of marriage begins with God's Word, particularly in Genesis. Not Leviticus and the law, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Marriage, we need to understand, is not an invention of culture. It's a gift from our Creator. God created it. God defines it. God governs it. And understood rightly, we have absolutely no right to change it. And as a creation, which is what we are, men do not have the right to dictate to the Creator what should be but every responsibility to understand and uphold what God says it is. So Jesus teaches us a few things just about marriage. And it's wise that we understand, especially the culture we live in, so that you don't walk around as an ignoramus just saying, that's bad. We shouldn't do that. Like, there's a reason why it's bad, right? The reason. We go back to what Jesus thought. People will often say, Jesus didn't teach on homosexuality, or Jesus didn't teach on... Yes, He did. Understood rightly, you will see how that is. So to begin, Jesus upholds that the Bible teaches marriages are for men and women. Jesus says that marriage is for male and female. They belong together. He quotes Genesis 2.24, saying, Therefore a man shall cleave... Leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Jesus upholds marriage as God designed it from the beginning between a man and a woman. And I found an interesting quote from a commentator which he said it way better than me and so I thought I would just read it. He said, if God had supremely intended solitary life, He would have created humans one by one. If God had intended polygamous life, God would have created one man and several women. If God had intended homosexual life, God would have created two men or two women. That God intended monogamous heterosexual life 
is shown by God's creation of one man and one woman. It's really simple. And you have to do all kinds of theological and hermeneutical acrobatics in order to avoid it. So Jesus begins there. Then he continues, though. The Bible doesn't just teach that it's for men and women. It teaches that marriages are forever on earth. We're not Mormon. Okay? On earth. He reminds them that the Bible said when people get married, they cease being two and they become one flesh that God Himself seals together. We call this a covenant marriage. In a covenant marriage, we become materially and physically and emotionally and legally bound to one another. It is not just natural. In many ways, it is very much a supernatural conjoining of two lives. I like the way Tim Keller describes a covenant, saying that a covenant is a relationship more loving and intimate than merely a legal relationship, but more binding, enduring, and accountable than merely a personal relationship. Marriage may not be less than a license from a state, but it is definitely more. And divorce is more than simply ending a civil agreement or union. When you break a covenant marriage, not only are you destroying something God has put together, so you're working against God. Now, whether you destroy it by an unbiblical divorce or you breaking the covenant that brings a lawful divorce, okay? Lots of ways a covenant can be broken. But when you break a covenant, you are working against something God has done. Not only that, you are tearing your own flesh apart. You're tearing your own flesh apart. There's very few people who I believe ever say when they're about to get married, hey, 10 years from now, let's end it. That'd be awesome. Right? That's the plan. Five years from now. 25 years from now. Let's just call it quits. And I would argue that there's probably very few people, maybe some, who would say, man, I'm so glad that that experience happened. It wasn't painful at all. The pain of a divorce, biblical or unbiblical, is ripple effect and long-lasting because you're tearing one flesh apart. Malachi 2, the Lord, um, the la- uh, when the temple is being rebuilt, the history is not necessarily important, He comes and He condemns the false worship of um, His own people, saying, you guys are screwing up all kinds of things. And He condemns them for their divorces. And here's what He says, Malachi 2.15, He says, Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? Because they're just divorcing their wives and going crazy, and this is why He condemns them. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. He warns them, like, this is a warning for you. I put my spirit in this union. It's not just a piece of paper. It is 
a union sealed by God where you become one flesh, and it's intended to last until the day Jesus returns or one of you dies. So it's forever. For men and women, it's forever. And he also says, the Bible teaches that marriages are actually for God. See, I think men and women, when I say men, I generally mean just mankind. So I believe that they kind of divorce with ease because they wrongly believe that um, marriage was designed for their own happiness. And so therefore, when they're not happy, they have the right to be done. I'm generalizing, I understand that. But God designed, I believe, and purposed marriage to glorify Him by displaying the covenant relationship that He has with His people. This is what the Bible says in Ephesians 5. In fact, it says this, same quote out of Genesis 2. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I, Paul, am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What does that mean? Well, it means this, that the purpose of marriage is to preach a sermon about Jesus. That's the purpose of it. It's not primarily for our happiness, though it certainly does bring happiness. It's primarily to preach a sermon about Jesus and what we do with and in our marriages with one another proclaims either truth or lies about Jesus' relationship with us. So as we do things that are unbiblical, we are, if we say it's a marriage, and I say I'm a husband, I am declaring lies about Jesus if it's not aligning with Scripture. I'm saying something about Jesus to the world. That's costly. So, Jesus says, look, marriage is God's. belongs to Him. It's His. Then the Pharisees go, but wait. Didn't Moses say? that we could get out of it? Throughout the Gospels, I think Jesus has a lot to say about divorce because marriage has a lot to say about Jesus. And He corrects the Pharisees' assertion that Moses commanded them divorce. You see the word He uses, commanded. Like, didn't Moses command divorce? He's like, no, He allowed divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. In other words, divorce was not God's ideal from the beginning. There is a difference between God's desired will and His permissive will. He desires all men to to be saved, though we know men are not. He desires all marriages to maintain and be awesome forever, though we know that they are not. And He permitted divorces in some cases. Divorce in and of itself came as a result of sin. It became necessary in Genesis chapter 3. And though biblically permissible at times, and we'll talk about that, what I've found, and maybe you agree, maybe you don't, that most of the time, divorce is sinful. not saying divorce generally is always sinful. I'm saying most divorces, though, I believe are sinful. Even if a lawful divorce itself is not sinful, which Jesus says a lawful divorce under certain conditions is not sinful, That which causes a lawful divorce always is. We, bottom line, fail to meet God's ideal, which is not a new thing. We fail to meet God's ideal with how we speak, how we treat one another, 
how we execute justice. We fail to meet God's ideal with how we eat and drink. We fail to meet God's ideal. We all fall short of God's glory in every way, shape, or form. That's not an excuse. That's just an explanation. God's law, namely divorce in this case, was given to help regulate the sin of our flesh. It does not have the power to stop the sin in our hearts. The Pharisees wrongly believe, as they're coming to ask, how far can I go? You know what they're actually believing? They believe if they can figure out the right way to obey it, then they'll somehow be righteous. Obedience, check this out, obedience to the law will never, ever, 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 ever make you less sinful. It will protect you from more sin and protect others from sin. But you will always be as sinful as you are. But I do believe that the law came not only to prove that, but to protect from more sin. This is one of the reasons why divorce came. Not only have we and the Jews, I think, of Jesus' day failed to see the true purpose of marriage and perhaps all relationships, Jesus here shows that we've also failed to see the true purpose of the law. The true purpose of the law was to learn what it meant to love God as a sinful people. And also, how to love other sinful people. The laws defining marriage and allowing divorce and even punishing sexual immorality because adultery was a stonable death offense. They were all designed to maximize love, not create it. And they were all designed to minimize sin, not eliminate it. You understand that? The law came to to maximize love in a really broken, terrible situation. It wasn't going to actually create love. It was going to maybe try and protect it. And it was given to minimize sin, but it never ever could eliminate it. That's why Jesus came. God hates divorce, bottom line, but He conceded divorce in order to limit the damage. And here, Jesus does condemn any reason divorce where men basically try twisting the law in order to pursue more sin. And he does affirm adultery as an allowable reason for divorce. I actually believe there's three allowable reasons for divorce. The Bible here teaches very clearly that it's sin of adultery. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul teaches about the sin of abandonment where a non-believing spouse says, I'm done, and Paul says, be at peace, it's okay. And one that is perhaps disagreeable or open to interpretation is what I'll call a sin worthy of death. For example, there are certain laws in the Old Testament that if we executed them in a godly way would make divorce very natural. For example, you murder somebody. Murder was a death sentence. Well, it's not in our culture today. So as a pastor, you think, okay, so someone 
married to a murderer. They get life in prison. Do you tell that person to continue to be married to them forever while they're serving their life sentence? I would be apt to say no because in God's world, that person would be dead. And the divorce would be quite natural because they would not exist. And there are others like that. And obviously, every situation is unique, but there are other means by which the covenant is broken is my point. We have to be careful being too formulaic, but also staying biblical. But there are exceptions. And the Bible is very clear that there are exceptions. And everyone, though, it seems, wants to be the exception when they want out of a marriage that they don't like or a relationship they don't like. Well, there's got to be exceptions. And Jesus is trying to say, no, very few. And not the ideal. It's interesting that when people decide they don't like someone, or they want out of a relationship, it doesn't have to be a marriage, they'll often start to declare the individual, either out loud or in their mind, sinful, in order to make themselves feel better about ending a relationship that they shouldn't. And all that comes back to the place where we wrongly believe that relationships exist for our personal benefit. We wrongly believe that relationships depend on our personal feelings. And we wrongly believe that relationships function according to my personal preferences. You should act and function the way I think. And if not, you make me unhappy, maybe sinful, therefore I don't have to be in a relationship with you anymore. Basically, if the benefits of this relationship, the feelings of the relationship, or the preferences of this relationship change, I'm out. So let's just be really clear. God certainly allows exceptions in regards to a marriage, but it is God's desire that we stay in relationships. He allows exceptions, but it is God's desire that we stay. That's hard to do. The disciples see it. That's hard to do. It requires a different kind of humility. It requires a different kind of love. It requires a different kind of forgiveness that's not like this world. The disciples, in verse 10, reveal their own struggle with this kind of commitment. They understand exactly what Jesus is saying. Basically, he's like, there's no escape clause in this marriage. You realize when I married my wife, and I've said this before, my vows to her were not this. I will marry you as long as you don't become like 600 pounds. Because at that point, done. Once you're over 599, forget it. Or if you get bad burns on your face, can't handle it anymore. Or if you commit adultery, that was not in my vows. My vows also didn't say, as long as you live out your vows, I'll live out mine. My vows said, I will love you as long as you're breathing. As long as your heart is beating. Now, I'm saying that as a man who has a wife who hasn't committed adultery. And perish the thought that that would ever happen. Right now, my hope is I would stay. I would stay. Hard as hell... I've met people who've experienced that pain. I can't imagine it. It would be incredibly difficult. Years and years and years of healing and mourning. But I would stay, I can say right now. 
not being in it. That's what I committed to. That's what my covenant was. The disciples listen to what Jesus is saying, this no escape clause, and they're like, dude, no way. They say, it's better to stay single. That's what they say. They're like, that's what marriage is like. Let's just stay single. I wonder what Peter's saying, because I know he's married. Right? He's, he's one of the guys we know is married at this point, but you don't hear him talking. That's a high commitment, Jesus. And here's what Jesus says in response. Not everyone can receive the same, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And eunuch would be, in our day, someone who is single. Yeah, physically they've, they've been castrated and, and they are not able to really, and probably wouldn't have a marriage. I guess hypothetically they could, but for the purpose of procreation. So really, in our context, we'd understand this as singleness. But eunuchs, some from birth, or some have been made eunuchs by men or others, who are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let one who is able to receive this receive it. So he bookends these two statements with it's hard to receive. And depending on how you understand these final verses, Jesus could be saying that it's hard to receive what he just said about marriage, or it's hard to receive what he's about to say about singleness. And depending on the situation we find ourselves in, I think we believe, and I think we rightly so, that being married is hard. You heard that, Candace, right? Being married is hard. Being single is hard. Being divorced is hard. And the temptation for all of us, just I think as the Pharisees are, is to focus on finding a way out. Especially when it's really hard and when sin maybe comes into it. What can I do, apart from sinning, what can I do to get myself out of this? you're married, it's like, what are the exceptions? Um, I've heard people say like, well, he committed adultery with his job. Come on. I've heard single people say, well, I know they don't believe. I mean, they're not Christian. They're their own Lord. Why would you date someone like that? But we kind of play those games, right? What? How far can I go? What's the exception? I'm not really sinning so I can get out of my singleness or get out of this marriage or this relationship. We view the difficulty of relationships that we find ourselves in or the lack of relationship altogether as a mistake, as a curse to be rejected versus a gift to be received. Jesus used that word receive like four or five times in those last couple of verses. 
Let me just say this. Whether you are married right now or single right now or divorced right now, where you are at is not a mistake. Where you are at is not a mistake. Every one of these stations, we'll call them, is difficult in its own way. Though we like to romanticize what we're not as if it's not difficult. You got married people saying, I wish I was single. You got single people, I wish I was married. Despite what our Facebook culture wants to tell you, your relationship status is not your identity. Your relationship status is not your identity. According to Scripture, it's a gift from the Lord. Following a very lengthy passage on marriage in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul wrote this about people who became believers and then they're in these married situations trying to figure out what's best for the Lord. He says in verse 17, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him to which God has called him. What if we were to look at relationships a little bit differently? What if relationships, every relationship we have, and every station in life we have is actually a gift, a means to live out the gospel? An opportunity to live out the gospel. I believe that every relationship, no matter how difficult it is, and perhaps even more so when it is difficult, is an opportunity to preach Jesus. I mean, to show when when sin comes into relationships, to be able to show an out-of-this-world kind of love, to be able, like Christ, to hope and to even hurt and to forgive, and I know we want to say, but Jesus, you, you, you couldn't have put me in this situation. I mean, it's hard to love somebody like that. It's, it's hard to forgive somebody and help somebody. They don't deserve it. He says, yes, now you know what it's like to have a relationship with you. Right? I believe we begin to live out the gospel in our marriages when we begin to embrace the idea that our relationships are not really for us. They belong to God and they're designed and given to declare something about God. So the question is never, how do I, how do I change my situation? It's more of, what am I going to preach about God in it? The Bible is pretty clear that all of life is given to glorify God, whether you eat or drink. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. We can eat and drink or do many things for many different purposes other than bring glory to God. And marriages and relationships, because I know many just relationships are no exception. Most people do relationships for very man-centered purposes, but I believe that God gives us relationships, specifically or particularly marriage, but even other relationships, because he believes that together it's going to bring more glory to him. And you go, oh, come on. Because what, what kind of marriage are we talking about? One that's kind of broken? A friendship that's kind of difficult? Like, ah, man, it's just, there's sin in it. It's just hard. What if 
God has given that as a gift for you to be able to better proclaim His love, His forgiveness, His glory, to make much of Him. If it is just about you and your own happiness, you're right, get out of it. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's actually for God. And bringing glory to God means very simply this. Displaying what He thinks is great. And guess what He thinks is great? Jesus. That's the maximum way to glorify God is to look like Jesus. So guess what? We cannot look like Jesus until we start looking at Jesus. You'll not look like Jesus until you start looking at Jesus. That's what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed in the same image. From one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is spirit. So let's look at Jesus' marriage to us. What? Jesus never commits adultery. He is faithful. Jesus never abandons us. He is intimately with us always. In fact, Jesus sacrifices Himself to love me, enduring the penalty that I deserved. In other words, not only does He never commit adultery, He takes the punishment when I do. Catch that? When you see how much Jesus loves you, you stop working to find a more loving situation and you love more in your situation. We all need Jesus' love. So I'll conclude with just talking to everyone in their particular place. If you're single, I pray you will learn to enjoy the love of Jesus as your spouse. So, God willing, one day you'll be prepared to love like Him. And if you're married, I simply pray that you will remember the love of Jesus and love your spouse like Jesus loves you, even if they don't. And if you're divorced for an unbiblical reason, I pray that you will experience the forgiveness of Jesus because it's not the unforgivable sin. And that you will love your current spouse like Jesus loves you. And if you are divorced for an unbiblical reason and single, I pray that you will receive the loving forgiveness of Jesus and you will look forward to your next wedding in heaven with Him. And as the church, as the church, we are to remember who we are to be in Christ. I pray that we will all be controlled by the love of Jesus, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, enough to do this, to comfort or confront one another as we struggle in marriages and relationships. Like You can't take Matthew 18 and separate it from 19. It's when sin comes into relationships, there are going to be people who are considering divorce, and you have to have the boldness to confront them. And there may be those that are wrecked by a difficult relationship, and you're going to have to have 
the love and love enough to comfort them. And never ever forget as you sit in your situation and go, it's just too hard. Never ever forget the hope of the resurrection which reveals that we have a God and we serve a God who can bring hope from hopelessness. We serve a God who can bring beauty from ashes. We serve a God who can take that which is dead and breathe life into it. Make sure your hope is rightly placed in Jesus, our King, our Lord, the resurrected King and Lord. And as you come to the table, never forget, this is a celebration, but it's also a memorial. This is for those who have confessed, I believe Jesus loves me, though I am broken and sinful. And this is the proof of His love and your brokenness at the same time. So as you come to the table, you're remembering Jesus is the one who never committed adultery, though it might have been tempting for you who did. Jesus never abandons you. Jesus is faithful, though you don't deserve it. And also remember that this points to a final wedding we will all have with Jesus one day. where Relationships won't be difficult, and they'll only be joyful, and we'll be with Him and feel that love completely. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for the glorious, beautiful, overwhelming, otherworldly love of Jesus. Being married is hard. Being single is hard. Being in relationships is hard. Especially when our flesh and sin make it worse. But Father, I pray we'll not be a people who seek for the exception, but that we will pursue Your ideal. An ideal that is designed for our joy and for Your glory. But we recognize that we cannot do it by ourselves. That we suck at relationships. And so we pray for Your help. And we pray that You will just show us in the clearest of ways, the love that Jesus has for us, and that by just looking at that, that love will make us more loving and maybe even a little more lovable. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.